Good evening, everyone. Can everybody hear me okay? Great. Um, it is hard to believe, John, that our uh, our entire 10-week practice period has, has come and is on its way into our very last week. And today we take up <clears throat> both the the sixth and the seventh realization. So, John, if you would put it up. I'll just read it. The sixth realization is the awareness that poverty creates hatred and anger which creates a vicious cycle of negative thoughts and actions. When practicing generosity, bodhisattvas consider everyone, friends and enemies alike, to be equal. They do not condemn anyone's past wrongdoings or hate even those presently causing harm. Thank you, John. Poverty creates hatred and anger, which creates a vicious cycle of negative thoughts and actions. That describes karma in action. An alternative translation uh, to the sutra uh, from the one that we read with Thai all the time is that poverty and hardship breed resentment creating harm and discord. And as with each of the realizations, when we hear these words, we intuitively know them to be true. They just ring true. We see poverty and its results all around, all around us in the world, in our culture, in our history, our history as a species. So I'd like for just a moment, just close your eyes and sit with the word poverty. Just hold that word in your mind. And what, what pictures, what word pictures, what photographic pictures arise in your mind when you contemplate that word? Poverty. What do you see when you think and hear poverty? Would, would a couple of you like to just share very, very briefly, just a sentence? What is it you're, what is it you're seeing? What is it you're visualizing? Just unmute and say. Um, Allison bowing in. I guess the first images that I that I conjure are um, uh, people struggling with economic poverty, um, and so I think of hunger and I think of um, lack of housing. Another picture: the actual poverty where you've seen it in the world. Where is that? 
It's Monica bowing in. I think of rows and rows of tents and people housed in those tents just three blocks away in a beautiful park all last winter. Mm -hmm. Monica bowing out. And I know if we just continued to ask each one of us, we, could, we have a vivid picture of poverty. Um, my, my first uh, kind of real realization of poverty was, was Bangladesh back in the late 60s. So the definition of poverty is an economic state where people are experiencing scarcity or the lack of certain commodities that are required for the basic needs of human beings. Things like safe water, nutritious food, housing, clothing, and money. Poverty is a multifaceted concept, inclusive of social, economic, and political elements. And I would posit that poverty also includes spiritual elements. In the United States, much poverty has its roots in our racist and classist past. After slavery was abolished in the U.S., federal and local policy limited the opportunity for black people to succeed economically and socially, which kept them in poverty for generations. This, the same holds true for our indigenous ancestors and their descendants, as well as other people of color upon whose backs the U.S. flourished. I know that's true for our neighbors as well. It's not just true for the U.S. We're all suffering under the burdens of it and the results of it. Racism is, is prejudiced of it's prejudice or bias against or in favor of people belonging to a particular race and therefore often to a particular class. It's a bias for or against. Poverty often begins with being impoverished of opportunity Whole segments of the population and society are cut off from opportunity. And this sutra says that hatred and anger are natural, logical consequences of poverty. Even being in an upwardly mobile class cannot override the impact of race. Hands up for people who know who Chris Rock is. <laughs> Chris Rock is a, a very successful black comedian. And at one of his performances I, I attended uh, back about 10, 15 years ago, um, I remember him saying, looking into the audience saying, I probably make more money than just about anyone in this audience. But there's not a white man in here that would trade places with me. Wow. 
even his personal success and wealth, couldn't spare him a sense of rejection and exclusion from the predominant culture. That's poverty in a different sense. And it's easy to see how hatred and anger would be the natural consequences of feeling that kind of marginalization. Larry Ward is a Dharma teacher ordained by Thay. He's a, a black man and he gave a Dharma talk at our Order of Interbeing online retreat weekend before last. And he said, uh, uh, he was asked at one time, do you see an intersection between racism and ecology? And he replied, we, retreat, we treat black people and the environment like they're disposable. Monica had a vision of homelessness and tents. Homeless is out of control in the United States. I know it is elsewhere. Just last week, a young friend of mine shared that as a result of the pandemic, he feared the loss of his income would leave him homeless. And he said it was the first thing he thought about when he opened his eyes every single morning. And people I've, I've spoken with, I've spent time with, living in poverty, people living on the streets, speak of constant fear, endless fear. I used to, uh, a group and I in Seattle used to have these, uh, we would go do what we called free listening, where we'd sit in parks or sit in places uh, where we thought there was suffering and we just had these, eventually we made shirts that said free listening and people would walk up and, and say, what do you want to hear? Say, Whatever it is you have to say. And I can't tell you the number of times we, we would also go in, we would sit in, in homeless shelters and I can't tell you the number of times people just sat down and talked with me about there's just abject fear they faced every day. One said, you know, I used to be in an orchestra and I would be so frightened when this, the curtain went up on the stage, I'd have stage fright. But it's, that was nothing compared to waking up every morning and not having any idea of where I am, where I've slept, what I'll eat, whether I'll eat, and even many of us who have the highest level of compassion for the homeless don't want them encamped in our neighborhoods. But poverty's on our doorstep and it breeds resentment, it breeds hatred and anger and it divides us. Those with less come to resent, can come to resent those with more. Our 2016 election in the U.S. was about those with more fearing losing what they have to those with less. 
And right there, we observe the downward spiral of negative thoughts and actions spiraling further into civil unrest and protests and riots and, and insurrection. And don't be confused. Intentional, institutional, structural poverty is at the root of the disenfranchisement of black, brown, and indigenous people. And it's true of people all around the world where poverty exists. In a world where we have so much, so many are hungry, so many are dying of starvation every single day. And poverty cuts both ways. Now, the wealthy as well as the poor are caught in the vicious cycle and, and often not realizing it. The wealthy as well as the poor are caught in this vicious cycle. So how does the Sutra invite us to respond? How do we act? Earlier realizations, the first five, urged us to live simply and peacefully and having few desires. This discourse invites us to live with an attitude of generosity. This realization, this specific one, outlines a response that is generosity. And responding, responding to poverty out of our gratitude by being generous with others. And we make the practice of generosity our way of life whether it's money, material resources, and also our time. Our time is one of our most precious commodities. Uh, Roshi Bernie Glassman, a, a Zen priest in the uh, Soto Zen tradition, and Roshi Bernie once told me he did a lot of work in his life with the homeless back, back east, in the east coast in New York. And one time he told me that the most, um, the most important thing you could do for a homeless person is ask, how are you? And then stay and listen for the answer. In thinking of generosity, we, we can see our material possessions as not something we own, but things for which we're pers uh, uh, temporarily stewards. 
all these things, these things we own, the money that we have, it's all just passing through. You know, you can't take it when you go. And it's all just passing through, through our hands. We're invited to be generous without discrimination. The, the sutra asks us to consider everyone, friends and enemies alike, to be equal. The alternate translation is, behold the friendly and hostile equally. That's hard. I, I've had, had people tell me it's impossible for them to be open-hearted, much less generous with people of the opposing political party. And another Larry Ward quote from the OI retreat that Monica reminded me of earlier this week goes straight to the heart of what's being asked of us here. And Larry said, how, how, how to be engaged without becoming entangled. I turn to Tori Zenji an 18th century monk who was Hakuin Zenji's Dharma successor. And he wrote about this very subject. All the more we can be especially sympathetic and affectionate with foolish people, particularly with someone who becomes a sworn enemy and persecutes us with abusive language. Get this. That very abuse conveys the Buddha's loving kindness. It's a compassionate device to liberate us entirely from the mean-spirited delusions we have built up with our wrongful conduct from the beginningless past. Wow, can we look at those that we consider our enemies as well as those we like? their words to us, their actions toward us, their feelings toward us are all a compassionate device. And if we allow them in and allow them to work their perfect work in us, liberate us entirely from the mean-spirited delusions and illusions that we've built up. The antidote to poverty is generosity. The opposite of a vicious cycle is a virtuous cycle. And a virtuous cycle is a recurring cycle of events, the result of each step results in increasing the beneficial effect of the next. I'll say that again, a virtuous cycle is a recurring cycle of events. The results of each step in the cycle increasing the beneficial effect of the next. Generosity starts a virtuous cycle. And with generosity, there is, in, in our practice, there is no giver and there is no receiver, there is just 
the exchange. Each of us is called in our own way to find the way that we can best be generous. So finally, let's just address spiritual poverty. You know, spiritual poverty is, I'm going to be succinct here, it's not understanding that our birthright as Buddha from the beginning. Our spiritual poverty is not understanding, it's not getting it, that we are Buddha from before the beginning. Spiritual poverty is being bereft of of the spiritual insight or spiritual context to our life. The most important thing we can offer to others in generosity is a beautiful mind. And we make our mind beautiful when we take a tip from the third realization when we regard the realization of perfect understanding to be our only career. If you remember back, I, I defined perfect understanding as the aspiration and intention to recognize, observe, and completely grasp how the mind works and thereby overcome enslavement to it. I'll repeat that. Perfect understanding is the aspiration and intention to recognize, observe, and completely grasp how the mind works and thereby overcome our enslavement to it. A beautiful mind, a mind of perfect understanding can be our response. It is our response to poverty. So thank you. Thank you for listening. And in these few minutes, while we enjoy, John will invite one bell, and then I'll invite two bells for John. So in these few moments, touch into that aspiration and that intention to recognize, observe, and completely grasp how the mind works, and thereby overcome enslavement to it. Thank you.
Thank you, Michael. So let's uh, let's move a little bit, huh? Let's let's shake this out. We just took in a lot. So when when Michael and I were thinking about this practice period and putting it together, we we put these two as one because one is warning us about the dangers of too little, and the other is warning us about the dangers of too much. So it seems like they're they're a good companion to bring up at the same time. So I'm going to share my screen. And I'm wondering if someone might volunteer to read this for us, the seventh realization. Feel free to unmute yourself and read away. Josh going in. The seventh realization is the awareness that the five categories of sensual desire, money, sex, fame, overeating, and oversleeping lead to problems. Although you are in the world, try not to be caught in worldly matters. A monk, for example, has in his possession only three robes and one bowl. He lives simply in order to practice the way. His precepts keep him free from attachment to worldly things, and he treats everyone equally and with compassion. Thank you, Josh. So, you know, in uh, other talks, I have sort of um, broadly gone a different direction from what the words of the realization is. But this one, I think I'm going to stay pretty close to it and, and take it almost line by line. But I first want to say that, you know, really for this seventh realization to be useful, it has to be personal. It doesn't do us much good to think about the five categories of sensual desire in the abstract or in someone else's lives. But for them to have um, relevance to me, they have to be seen in me. So I want to bring us back to this, the personal nature of this, of this insight, of this realization. So let's begin with this line, the five categories, money, sex, fame, overeating, and oversleeping lead to problems. Well, you know, we could say that same line, but end it differently. The five categories of sensual desire, money, sex, fame, overeating and oversleeping are essential drives of being a human being. And when balanced, these desires, these human drives are what allow us to survive. Don't we all want enough resources to support ourselves? sex for love and procreation and pleasure, to be respected, to have enough to eat, to be well rested. I mean, these are all the five categories of sensual desire, but they are essential for us to, to live a happy life as well. So there's nothing wrong with any of these things at all. I find it really interesting that the sutra says that desires lead to problems, not that they inherently are problems. And I remember from our earlier discussion on the second uh, realization that that's what we spent a lot of time discuss discussing. 
are these things always problems? But this realization, you know, it, it, I think it explicitly says that it leads to problems, not that they are problems. So it's when we live out of balance within these basic human drives that they become problems. So when we hoard resources instead of providing for ourselves, when we become sexually predatory instead of sexually loving, when we sell our soul for fame instead of accepting the respect for our good behavior that people will give us, when we eat more than our fair share instead of eating wisely and healthily, and when we waste our lives in indolence instead of resting appropriately. So it points back to balance in these things. So how do we find this balance? Well, the next line I want to talk about. A monk, for example, has in his possession only three robes and one bowl. He lives simply in order to practice the way. And Michael brought up this idea of living simply a few minutes ago. I'd like to turn to the Buddha's life for an example. I, I do this personally all the time. I think um, it's a, a great example. The, the myth of the Buddha is so powerful. So in the Buddha's early life, he was indulgent. He was raised a prince. And I can imagine that he indulged in all five of these categories of sensual desire. You know, he had everything he wanted, everything. He had money, he had sex, he had fame, he had overeating, he had oversleeping. I mean, really, what else does a prince do? Right? Why do we want to be a prince or a princess or a billionaire or a famous person, right? It's so we can do all this stuff as much as we want to with no apparent cost to ourselves. So that's what the Buddha apparently did. But he was dissatisfied by that. He saw the end of it. So he swung his pendulum from indulging in these sensual desires to complete denial on the other side. And he became an ascetic. And he denied himself every single one of these things. And what happened? Well, he almost died. He almost died. But he awakened when he found the middle way, when he was no longer caught either in indulgence or in denial. To live the middle way is to live simply. It's not caught in chasing after too much. It's not caught in some self-punishing, hair-shirted denial where we make ourselves into a martyr for, for nothing. And living simply helps us find that sweet spot between denial and indulgence. It's much easier. So like this realization says, a nun has what she needs, three robes and a bowl. Not too little, not too much. She has a simple, balanced life. So another line from this one, his precepts keep him free from attachment to worldly things, and he treats everyone equally and with compassion. For this, I turn to our mindfulness trainings, which I think are concrete guides 
toward the middle way, to keep us free of attachment. So when I prepared to take the trainings, uh, at first I saw them as a list of things I can't do. I was still, I was really in indulgence, you know, and I was afraid that I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that, I couldn't eat meat, I couldn't drink a beer, you know, I was afraid. I, I feared I might have a, a, a life of, of self-denial. But later, I began to see the trainings as protection from excess. Right? So while I feared I was going to live a, a life of denial, I saw that, oh, they are going to protect me from living a life of excess. So they protected me from self-indulgence. They protected me from from something really important that I didn't realize, which was wasting my time pursuing too much. Wasting my time pursuing too much. You know, a, a friend told me a kind of a funny story, funny and maybe a little sad story. Uh, she was watching one of those shows on TV where people go and they shop for um, vacation homes in, in beautiful locations. And she talked about this one couple that went to Spain and they found this beautiful house that they bought. And they were so happy to buy this house. And what did they do? After looking and looking and looking all over the place and finally finding this house, they then tore the insides out and rebuilt the whole thing, right? So she was laughing because what it seemed like was they couldn't be content with finding this nice vacation home. Now they had to waste all the time they hoped to spend there in enjoyment in remodeling it when it was perfectly fine the way it was. So I think, I think that the, our mindfulness trainings protect us from wasting the time of pursuing too much. We have more time to simply be and enjoy. And I think the mindfulness trainings also protect us from indulgent self-concern. You know, we, we might be trying to collect too much self-concern. Too much worry about me. You know, if, if we aspire to treat everyone equally and with compassion, that's me and that's you. If I'm giving way too much to me, I have nothing left for you. And so our mindfulness trainings, each one of them starts with the line, aware of the suffering caused by. Whatever the, whatever the training is about, aware of the suffering caused by. And this opens our hearts to whatever overindulgence costs us or costs others. You know, I, I uh, have in my pantry one of those big jars of cashews, which I really like. And, and since I learned something about how cashews are harvested and prepared, I eat them with a whole different mindset. They're in India where uh, these cashews are shelled, um, women do this work sitting on the floor, and it's very, very hard on their hands. There's caustic um, chemicals in the, in the shells of the cashews. It turns the women's hands black. But they don't wear gloves because it would slow them down. They wouldn't make enough money to eat. So I'm aware of what my overindulgence of eating a whole bunch of cashews costs another person. And another example of this that I've been sitting with lately is the, the Costco rotisserie chickens. 
Now, you know, they, they sell these for $4.99 and they've been, they haven't raised the prices apparently ever on these. And when I go to Costco, I'm, I'm a little bit like an alien there looking around and, and I see these, these um, ovens full of these chickens. Well, I found out they sell 100 million of those a year, 100 million chickens a year. And the only way they can sell them for $4.99 is because those chickens are raised in horrible conditions. The worst conditions to, in order to keep the costs low enough that we can walk into Costco and only have to part with $4.99 for a fully cooked chicken to bring home for dinner. But who pays the cost of that? The chicken and the farmer who grows the chicken by having to witness this and be part of that. So we treat everyone equally and with compassion. We have to see, we have to look deeply to see what that really means in every situation. All right, how about this line from it? Although you are in the world, try not to be caught in worldly matters. Although you are in the world, Try not to be caught in worldly matters. So to me, this is the heart of being a lay practitioner. To be in the world without being caught by worldly matters. And I love being a lay practitioner. Ty often used to say that um, lay practice is much more difficult than monastic practice. Monastics leave home and they enter the monastery where they have everything they need their food, their shelter, their practice community, it's provided for them. Their clothing, their three robes and one bowl are all provided. Lay practitioners, on the other hand, you and me, we remain in the world and we have a lot of complexity to face. A lot of complexity. Uh, I think monastics get this opportunity to practice really, really deeply but within the narrow confines of the monastic life. So when they leave the monastery, they may not be able to translate that deep practice easily into the things that we as lay practitioners are dealing with every day, all the time. So I think about our practices potentially less deep as the monastics, but broad, broad. So we get to practice with real world issues. You know, and we could we could sit here and name for the rest of the evening, but things like how do you how much do you save for retirement? What does it mean to have enough when you stop working? How do you navigate a relationship with a non-practicing partner? What does that look like? Because few of us have practicing partners in lay practice in the West. Um, how do we benefit from technology like our, our phones and our pockets with all their wonderful aspects but, but not being overwhelmed by their addictive, intentionally addictive design? Well, these are the things we get to practice with every day, all day long. So I think we're really lucky to be lay practitioners because we're looking all the time at what does it mean to be in the world but not be caught by the world? You know, Zen has no rule book that we can turn to. 
There is nobody who goes and writes all this down and says, if you just do this, you've got it. So there's no teacher and there's no text that knows this stuff for you. They don't know your heart. They don't know your life. So each of us must live in this ever-changing balance of an engaged practice. If we think we've got it, we don't. We have to say in this moment, oh, okay, I can see my way to balance here. Now this moment, oh, yeah, I can see my way to balance. So that one of the reasons that we've done this practice period is because this sutra really helps us in this. You know, each one of us becomes intimate with these potholes on the path, the things that we will fall into as lay practitioners. And we have to bring them into our own lives and practice them in our own lives. Circumstances just as they are. And we get to continuously experiment with this. Right? There, there is no rule book, so we get to experiment again and again. Does this work? No, this doesn't work so well. Does this work? Yeah, this works pretty well. Oh, now things have changed. Now let's try this experiment. But you know, luckily, what's really great is that we have a Sangha and we get to do this together. It's impossible for any one of us to figure this out. But together, we can do it. Together, we can come together and, and explore and experiment and try. Together, we learn what it means to be in the world without being caught by the world again and again again. All right, so let me just summarize that real quick. So the five categories of sensual desire are inescapable. They are, they are made of basic human drives. So the way to navigate this is to practice the middle way between indulgence and denial. I wish I could give a simple answer that says, this is wrong, this is right, do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. But I can't. It's just too gray. How are you going to separate ourselves from our basic human drives? We can't. So then we use our precepts to help us find the way and find the balance. And finally, being a lay practitioner is a gift, but also an enormous responsibility. Had enough words? We've really given you a lot of words tonight. So thank you all for listening. And this is the last of the, of the realizations we'll do in the practice period. We'll take up, Michael will talk about the eighth realization, the fire of birth and death raging in the retreat. And then I'll give a talk that's really different and unusual to wrap up the practice period and talk about the last few lines of the sutra telling a story about the Dharmakaya boat. So if you're not able to come to retreat, please do uh, look for the recordings. Uh, we'll, they'll be posted afterwards. Thank you all. Mike, would you like to unmute yourself so we hear the bell?
And I had done that so mindfully. 